Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Miles Irving, and I'll shortly be introducing Matt Orlando, chef proprietor of Amas Restaurant in Copenhagen. And uh, you know, it's a really interesting conversation. We touch on all sorts of issues around sustainability and food and the central role of chefs in changing attitudes and, and um, practices around food um, through their very influential position. Um, but before I get onto that, I just want to share some reflections um, which are very topical because you may be able to hear from my voice, I'm actually feeling the effects of the vast amounts of pollen in the air at the moment. I suffer from hay fever, which is slightly ironic, ironic given that I work with plants. But um, I'm finding that as we um, move through the seasons year by year and there's this kind of involvement in the life cycles of plants and, and other organisms, because we're you know, gathering and using them for food, um, there's always an opportunity for a reflection on, or a meditation on the underlying processes of life, which can um, you know, give you an insight into the plants themselves, but also creates a kind of meditation that has wider sort of metaphorical application to you know, how life works. And um, that can be uh, quite nourishing in itself. And so I have some reflections that that uh, have kind of come to mind. I've sort of determined to to allow this point of contact. You know, like with the with the life cycles of plants, generally we have these points of contact in terms of harvesting at certain points or noticing certain things. Well, in this case, I've got a, a involuntary point of contact, which is that I'm breathing in pollen, and it's it's having an effect on my body. But that I'm choosing to allow that to be a reminder of the presence of this pollen and, and that we are at this particular point in the year where the pollen is thick in the air and there's a sort of potency um, to what's going on. And, you know, the spring and the summer seasons are, they are a period of great fecundity. There, there is a production of organic matter as a result of the increased sunlight, plants converting light into sugars, and that fueling the growth and the, and the abundance of greenery and, and just sheer biomass that's around at the moment, which in itself feeds back into the life cycles um, of, of uh, the surrounding ecosystems because that, that substance creates food for other creatures. Um, that, that again, produces sort of growth and fatness in mammals, birds, whatever happens to be eating the plants. Um, but then again, there's a culmination to that growth uh, and, and that abundance of biomass, which is the uh, the onset of the reproductive cycles of the plants. And of course, what I'm experiencing just now is the uh, the, the, the stage of um, working up to fertilization, um, where the ovules of a plant will be will meet with a pollen grain, and that will produce a seed, um, which will mature possibly into a fleshy fruit that can be eaten, or the seed may be eaten. So again, that's food, but also um, this is creating the new beginning of, of entirely new individual individuals of that particular plant species as well. So, you know, it's the, it's, it's, it's the growth fueling food, but it's also the growth that fuels the uh, reproduction and the continuing of that particular species. Um, and uh, the meditation I've been having is just, there's just a sheer abundance of those pollen grains. There'll be um, many fewer ovules than there are pollen grains. And it's the same 
you'll see in the sea where it's for the for these pollen grains we're talking about airborne wind pollinating plants such as grasses and uh, even the nettles are just beginning to open up now for their pollen to be blown by the wind um, so those, these are the ones that cause the allergies because they are so um, super abundant and they rely on air moving them from one place to another um, so that they can find um, another of the same species but that's within a different population slightly further away potentially um, and it's the same in the sea where the medium is is water instead of air you have fish and other creatures that release um, sperm into the water and it's just millions and millions of sperm and still an awful lot of eggs but many many fewer um, so the superabundance is stacked in, in favor of the the um, the male gamete because there's there's a, a, a big chance that a lot of those will not actually make contact with the uh, with the static female gamete which is just sitting there and waiting um, and I thought there was some sort of meditation in that you know that the um, the male quality of pursuit perhaps um, and uh, you know going out looking for and the female sitting there very wisely waiting and, and being contained and just not having to try so hard hence there being fewer um, I thought there was something in that because it's clear like as we see the real f f fullness now of, of the uh, the sort of critique and uh, hopefully you know renunciation of of patriarchy the sort of male dominance because we can see the mess it's got us into you know we've we've gone out into all the world with our machines and our colonization and um, this is all very um, much the the excess of the male principle and uh, we're seeing that we're, we're going to have to you know withdraw and find a, a balance there because you know obviously humanity is not just that one principle humanity is um, equally feminine as as masculine and I just wonder if it's an, isn't a lesson there that actually um, if we take us as having embodied that masculine principle that the that the earth itself is embodying a feminine principle of just sitting there and waiting for us to come and settle down and make contact which will produce a kind of union you know i mean there's um there's um a relationship as i talk about over and over again on this podcast where people have lived in in a in a union with the earth but that only happens when we are still and quiet and 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 listening and allowing that reciprocity yes we have um a powerful influence as a species um but that now needs to be checked and curtailed that we allow ourselves to be actually shaped by our surroundings shaped by the biosphere and um and to um and to listen before it's it's almost too late so yeah um there's some there's some thoughts and um, I was just keen to get them out there so now I'll move on and introduce this week's guest okay so it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the World Wild podcast chef Matt Orlando who is the uh, chef proprietor of Amas restaurant but um, prior to that well Matt originates from California has um, lived in New York and He's worked with such illustrious chefs as Raymond Blanc, uh, Heston Blumenthal, Thomas Keller, and uh, Rene Redzepi at, at Noma. But I, I first 
met Matt at Nomad some years ago, but we kind of got to know each other a bit better when he was doing the uh, the Noma pop up at um, oh goodness me, it was the Connaught, wasn't it, Matt? Oh, at uh, Claridge's. Claridge's. Yeah. Yes. Number I'd, say got to, I'd say we got to know each other very well <laughs> during that event. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me, Miles. Yeah. Welcome to the Worldwide Podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was that was quite a trip, wasn't it? We uh, I was telling the story last week actually. Um, we sent out an SOS to foragers all over the UK to, get, yeah. to help us get sorrel in July because it was a bit dry in Kent. Yeah. And I remember you being very amused at all the funny little packages arriving from, from all over the UK. That was amazing. From small <laughs> islands up north to Wales to down south. to Yeah, it was all from all, with, with cool little notes and drawings. And that was definitely a – you really got a sense of community. That, that experience was amazing. That experience really made me realize the value of community as well. Yeah, well, it's. I mean, I'm I'm quite down on social media, but I must admit, Twitter did actually have a little moment for us there. Yeah, I, I sent a thing out on Twitter saying, "Foragers far and wide, please help." Yeah. So we can right. fulfill this demand, and we don't want to let uh, the uh, the guys down. Um, and and we got an incredible response. Yeah. Incredible, incredible. So how's it all going, Matt? Um, how's 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 the world at uh, at a mass for you? Yeah. It's a, it's going great. You know, we just had our, our, we're just not quite six years old yet. So, you know, that fifth year is kind of like the, the hump for most, for a restaurant. You made it, you make it through that fifth year and it's, that's kind of the, okay, now you're established and, and you're going and you've learned so much, you know, what, from what we are now to from when we opened, it's just a, it's a different animal. And, and I feel even though we've been open for almost six years, I feel we've only really started cooking and exploring what we want to do and, and how we want to tell the story and in the last year and a half or so. So the last year and a half has been really exciting. And going into 2019, I think we have a really good plan and just just how we want to cook food and how we want to make people happy. So, so what does that look like then? What what does is it able to is it possible to summarize that in few words? Like how you've settled down to a particular approach to cooking for, for Amas then? I think for us, you know, we, we have a very aggressive um, sustainability program yeah. at the restaurant. And, you know, we started out doing this and, and kind of changing our mindset and thinking like this, uh, first and foremost, to be responsible. But something that really came out of this was the creative process. And, and when I say creative process, it's flavors that we weren't ready for uh, or we weren't expecting i mean taking uh all of our stems and leaves that aren't aren't aren't, uh beautiful enough to put on the plate and salt fermenting them and drying them grinding to a powder then make them into a paste and then drying them again and it's something that looks like nori seaweed and tastes like nori seaweed stuff like that um so that is really affecting our creative process now so essentially we're starting with um we're starting with the byproducts uh, that we're kind of upcycling as our starting point of the creative process. And then generally a nice piece of fish or, or a, a beautiful carrot is the last thing we add to the dish uh, during this process. Just kind of cooking backwards, I guess. So when, when you said that, when you said that stuff's like nori, it's because you're rolling it out into sheets. Yeah. You're rolling it out. Yeah. into. I mean, that's the format that the end format, uh, but it looks like nori, but most importantly, it tastes like nori. It tastes like seaweed. It's quite interesting, and that's that's with a starting point of 
quite a diversity of ingredients. It could be a lot of different things going into that too. Exactly, and that and that based product that that seaweed taste can can vary depending on the type of herbs we're using in it. Like we were getting um, a bunch of wild watercress uh, in and. When we used wild watercress in that mix of different herbs, it tasted like seaweed and wasabi. Wow. Yeah. So those spicy herbs really give it a new dimension. But also if we're using a lot of angelica, it tastes like seaweed and like a bit of matcha tea. So it is – yeah, it, ch- it changes definitely with what we what we were using. Yeah. So, I mean, how long do you, how long do you run that um, fermentation for with the, with the watercress? We've – we found that it sort of has an optimum, like oh, seven ten days, and then after that, it, it's still good, but it's not to everyone's palate because it gets a bit funky. Funky. So we we usually hit we use about two percent salt, and yeah. we aim to between four to six days because we yeah. have a room that we run all our dehydrators in, and that, those dehydrators create a nice steady thirty to thirty five degrees Celsius. So four to six days is about our is the spot for us on that. And then and then and then you 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 just we dry we dry it, grind it to a powder, and then add a little bit of water back into it just to make a paste, and yeah. then spread it thin and dry it. That's so funny! Wow. Yeah. But there's a lot of things like that that we have kind of been able to different things. You just you you think that okay, I've used this product, it's done. But if you really look at a product, you know, kind of the creative process for us goes a little bit like we'll come up with a dish and then through that process, all the byproducts that are created, we put we save all those and then we lay them out on the table and say, okay, how do we address those stems? How do we address those lemon skins? How, and, and generally, we're able to find a way to utilize 100% of the byproducts we create. And we never – we don't process these into something else with a particular idea in mind for a dish, we mm. process them to a stable point where we can store them. And then we just have this massive larder of ingredients and flavors to draw upon when we're actually going through the creative process. And like I said, that creative process generally starts with us standing in the middle of this uh, shipping container that we have that's filled with all these dried and fermented things and just saying, okay, we have this uh, dried, we call it garden nori, Okay, that mm. there's our starting point. Where do we go from there? You call it what nori? Garden nori, because it's generally from all the stems and stuff from the from the garden outside. Okay. I mean, this sounds like um, it sounds like an artist speaking. You know, <laughs> you, know you know, when when people go to art college, they think they're going to learn how to paint and 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 do something. But but I mean, they're going to learn how to paint. But there's this whole thing where they have to get right down into the um, materials yeah. and then for that right down into the processes and there's a couple of funny things spring to mind like that were number one what you've described with the nori sheets there um i have a friend fergus drennan who you may have come across on the web but he's he when when forager first started out we were in business together he's gone off to do a, a lot of really interesting stuff around um, wild ingredients including exploring the potential of the same things that we eat as uh, artists ingredients so wow. he's all different kinds of paper and he reckons that the uh, the nori sheet was originally paper it wasn't filling really? yeah i mean i haven't i haven't checked that out but i, I think he's probably you know done his homework on that yeah. so mushroom papers and all sorts of other papers 
Um, it was kind of funny that, that you're ending up with these sheets like that. And, and then um, the, um, the store that you're describing there, it's, they're, they're like sort of artists' materials, aren't they? And, and, uh, they're materials. That's, that's exactly it. And, you know, we, why we were – why over the last five years, almost six years, we processing this stuff, processing it into different ingredients and flavors is one thing, but also learning how to use these is a whole different thing because a lot of flavors we're producing here are flavors that we've never ex- or ha- tasted before yeah. or flavors that are kind of a bit outside of the box of the normal flavor profile, I would say. So learning how to balance those mm-hmm. and work with them in a way that's not too – for lack of a better word, offensive, yeah. has been a has been a real interesting experience, and I think it's it's something that in the in the kitchen at a mass, it's it's embraced by everyone. I mean, coming up with the next way to process a byproduct into something delicious has become more or less a sport in the kitchen at a mass, yeah. and it's like who can come up with the next way to process the pulp of almond milk or who can come up with the next way to take uh, the bones of fish and turn them into something edible, which we, which we recently did. It, it makes me think of so many things, but I've spent a lot of time thinking about Matt, like the juxtaposition of um, tradition and innovation. Uh-huh. And if you look at what's happened in the last 20 years or so, um, where there's been an incredible emphasis on, innovation and just starting from scratch like old nordic cuisine thing or molecular gastronomy thing it's almost like let's let's not so much throw away the rule book but let's just Uh question the rule book and let's say could we do it another way could we use an ingredient that's not in the standard pantheon of ingredients but at the same time there's always this reference back in that process to Uh traditions right and when you look at the sort of heavy reliance on on japanese cuisine or in cuisine for some of the pointers to how do you actually approach this so there's like this this real kind of two-way flow between you know we're we're starting from scratch we're innovating and hang on yes but we're referring back to the the the, the sort of almost ancient wisdom of how to approach an ingredient or a certain process or whatever oh absolutely i mean I, i think you have to acknowledge the importance of um of history mm-hmm. and you, and the techniques. I mean, this whole thing, I mean, fermentation is such a cool and trendy thing right now. in in the, in the culinary world, but there are not too many fermentations happening now that haven't been done before. Mm-hmm. We are just using modern technology to understand those fermentations. Yeah. And then by having a deeper understanding we can take those fermentations and and alter them slightly to make a new flavor, whether that's through temperature, time, different ways to alter them. And in the past, this information about what was actually happening during the fermentation, it wasn't there. It's some, it was just something that had been done for a thousand years, mm. and this is how it was done, and this was your end product. But because we understand it a bit more, that gives us the the tools or the knowledge to be able to to bend it in certain ways without 
without going too far away from the traditional aspect of it. Well, what you're left with is still something that can basically be kind of kitchen chemistry, right? In most of these cases, you you, you don't discover a new aspect of fermentation that requires you have, you know, a massive laboratory with equipment that costs £100,000. It's, yeah. it's little tweaks that mean you can do it in, in, a, in a fairly low-tech way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a very... We definitely, at a mass, we are very conscious of really exploring all these new ways of thinking and, and ways of tweaking fermentation, but with without with minimal technology to um, to help us along the way. Because I think, especially for us, because we're we're exploring fermentation, but we're also we're using it to cook more responsibly. And so by doing this, we are creating a, a backlog of data on different ways of doing things. And unless we can produce these things with minimal, um, with minimal amounts of technology, then there's no way we'll be able to share this information with other kitchens out there yeah. that have minimal amounts of technology. Because what in the long run, we want to have an impact on the industry. We want to show people that you can cook responsibly without compromising deliciousness and without compromising the experience for your guests, that in order for us to do this, we have to be able to do it with minimal, like the, the bare minimum of kitchen equipment. So we definitely, we don't use centrifuges and we don't use all these different things. And any fermentation chambers we've, we've built um, or blackening chambers, we've done with traditional kitchen fridges hmm. that we've just put heating units in and anyone can do this. So yeah, it's, for us, it's about creating ways of doing things with minimal technological intervention. And I think it's, it, it kind of turns things on their head because when you look at a lot of research and development, what's, what's happening is someone seeking a methodology or, or technique that they can patent. Yeah. Means they can make loads of money and, and, and by patenting it, no one else can use it. Uh-huh. Whereas this is what you're talking about. It's all open source with a completely different end in mind from yeah. in a huge pile of cash and, and having a monopoly on it. it I think it's very, very, well, it's, I think it's wonderful. Yeah. I, I mean, like I said that, I mean, for the, you know, when you spend a few years working for Thomas Keller, you are really, uh, there's something that like, that a saying, I mean, he has, 10, uh, 10 rules to live by in the kitchen. But I mean, for one, one that really stuck with me is impact. And how can we have an impact not only on our everyday kitchens and how we run them, but how can we have an impact on a, a larger, um, just a larger audience of people? How can we, how can we put information out there that, that helps the industry? What I've learned recently, because we've been doing this quite aggressively over the last year and a half, two years, is that there are other industries besides the restaurant industry that are interested in this way of thinking. And, you know, you, I was listening to the, uh, the Fred Provenza, uh, podcast, yeah. podcast, which is amazing. Um, but he talked a lot about changing mindsets. Yeah. And I think that is, I think across any industry, whether you're in the restaurant industry, the furniture industry, every industry has some impact on the environment around them. Mm. And it's going to take changing mindsets. Mm to for us to move forward and, and just to become more responsible as, as human beings and yeah. so that that for me when it crosses over into other industries and just 
that 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 for me is the biggest impact yeah it's 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 amazing and uh, you know i do think that um it's an extraordinary thing that a chef just beavering away in a kitchen um ends up doing something entirely different from merely providing breakfast lunch and dinner for the guests you know? yeah See, that's the immediate short objective, but through that, all these other things that you're describing suddenly become the real work that's being done. Um, exactly. I mean, I, I, you know, when you when you work for someone else and you run someone else's kitchen, you are very much focused. Your world is that kitchen, and you don't really lift your head outside of it because that's your job to to run that kitchen and to to execute someone else's vision. Whereas when you open your own restaurant, and when I open a mass. I saw or I realized very quickly that a restaurant in and of itself is a very materialistic thing. And unless you or I mean, and I speak for myself, so I don't want to put words in other people's mouths. But for me, I really wanted a mass to have more meaning to it, more substance to it. So and you know, us as chefs right now, we have such a, a microphone and people are listening to us. So along with wanting to have the restaurant just have more substance to it and have more meaning and then realizing our responsibilities as chefs right now to actually do something positive and have a positive impact, those two things have really kind of been our our motivating factor at the restaurant um, to do what we do and to, to kind of push forward with different flavors. and But just in when it comes down to it, providing an experience for the guests that's enjoyable because unless we provide an experience, good food, good wine and a great atmosphere, nothing of what we do is going to, we're not going to convince anybody of what we're do, that what we're doing is the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I think that's great, but I, um, I think that what you're doing and what others working in the industry for, for with similar motivation are doing, it's um I mean I read a, a quote where you said that everything is is uh, is is all about flavor. Um but well, I wanted to slightly challenge you about um do it. I like it. That statement. <laughs> because I understand that you're saying at the point of delivery it's got to be delicious and it's got to be a wonderful experience. Yep. But I would I would just ask you um whether the recipe and the flavor that you're aiming at isn't more about you know a recipe between people and the landscape that's delicious because it's one that satisfies in the long run that we all get to feel like we've actually lived on this planet and and made everything go well and we've created um through the medium of food we've created a way for us to be part of this biosphere again in a way that's um beneficial to us and beneficial to the planet so you know I mean, the the taste that's left in your mouth is one that's you know kind of richer and deeper even than that wonderful experience of eating something in a restaurant i don't, I don't know how well i've managed to put that but i understand what you're saying so i agree with you on that but if we don't and, and this goes back to what i just said yeah if it doesn't matter i mean you and i can have a conversation about how responsible we are, how we can connect people back to nature, and how we are working to kind of make, I mean, make the universe a more cohesive place. But none of that is going to resonate with people unless 
what we serve them at the restaurant with all this mindset and how we're thinking is delicious. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Because we could, you and I could create the most holistic plate of food on the planet. And if it tastes like shit, <laughs> no one's gonna, no one's gonna believe that what we're doing is the right thing. Well, here it is. Here it is, Matt. The proof of the pudding is in the eating, right? Exactly. And so, you know, yeah. you, you really, people, I think it takes people, you have to feed into the humans, um, the human nature of materialism and um, to be able to pull them into this other world. Yeah. Whereas, you know, this has to be delicious. But let me tell you what. So at a mass, what happens is that at the very end of the meal, when you get your bill, because we don't talk too much about what we do during the meal. But at the very end of the meal, we make reference points here and there. But at the very end of the meal, with your check, you get a little card that explains to you what just happened and how we are, what our mindset is and how we cook and our approach to cooking. And that for me, that is kind of the the experience is first and foremost. Yeah. And then once people have this amazing experience, which I hope they have this amazing experience, then you tell them the substance of that experience, then that grabs people with much more of an impact than if you start off the meal about preaching about all the stuff you're doing and then you have the meal. Yeah, I, I just think that it's, we have a certain obligation to deliver a, a certain experience. But if we can deliver that experience, I mean, at the restaurant, we call it responsible deliciousness. That if we can deliver that experience, but done in the, the most responsible way, then, then we've achieved something. Well, I think it's, 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 um, it's not even like that. I mean, I know that you guys are working extremely hard and, and trying very hard to, um, end up with a, a diner experience and food on the plate that is thoroughly delicious and, and satisfying. But I mean, I would go so far as to say that like, if, if something is good, it will taste good. And, and I just think all of these different relationships that come into producing food that is more sustainable, where there's connections between uh, good connections with the land, good con connections with um, the people involved in producing, good connections with the diner's body. In other words, you're feeding them stuff that is going to make them healthy and not make them sick and things like that. When you, when you get all of these sort of beneficial um, connections going on, the end product, it, it's got to be delicious. That's, that's what I think because, you know, the human body is, is, has evolved to respond to flavors because those flavors are actually linked to the presence of um, bioactive compounds that are incredibly good for us. Yep. So I, th I think it's been this sort of weird thing that's happened around sort of nutraceuticals and health food just because people have done it badly. They've ended up with something that's, that's like nasty medicine, like yep. must eat this because it's good for me. But that's because it doesn't actually have any relationship to um, traditional food um, or, or even like the diet of an animal that's grazing in a field and finding out what to, what to eat. Um, and a good example of that is, you know, we use the word delicious um, and translate that into um, Japanese and we have the word umami. Yep. And umami is very, very simple 
in terms of its function biologically, it tells you that you're eating something with protein in it. Yep. It's a, it's a, it's a direct relationship that's flagging out the presence of a nutrient. So, yeah, I, I, I think, I think there's, there's, there's not this kind of dilemma to choose between shall we make it delicious or shall we make it sustainable? Shall we make it delicious or shall we make it healthy? You know, it's, it's, it's actually the, the fact that um, something is there on the planet means that, as in a species of plant or whatever, means that there's an there's a, a, a amazing relationship already between mammals or other herbivores and that plant that means that the, the mammal is able to flourish and thrive when it eats it. Um, and so the, the chef's craft is, is to put this thing between the... Um, between the the mammal, which is us, and that plant on the land, um, in a way that's even even more dynamic. In other words, to, to create culture. And yep. so I think I think just going back to what what we were saying before, this this sort of innovation and and um, tradition thing. I think what those technological things that you're talking about, those sort of low tech um, techniques, but maybe some of the the high tech analysis that we're able to put on. Um, you know, there's a lot of flavor chemistry analysis and stuff of what's going on with bacteria and fermentation, uh-huh. enabling us to to create new traditions which actually go much deeper. You know, they, yeah. they, can, be, they can be more delicious, more sustainable, more healthy. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure you feel the same, but I just keep thinking what an incredibly exciting time it is to be um, to be working in food. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have never had more understanding of what we are doing than now. And, you know, we, I always talk to my guys in the kitchen. And I said, you know, yes, you learn a lot here, but your your platform for learning should not just be when you come in the door to work and when you leave. Your platform for learning should be the world, <laughs> everyday life, and really unless you have knowledge or unless you have an appetite for knowledge, you're never going to progress. Yeah. And so, I mean, for us, for us, you know, you, you, you meant you touched on relationships and stuff like that. And relationships for us is, is massive at the restaurant because we are so intertwined with our farmers. We're so intertwined with, I mean, Thomas, who is basically our sole forager, um, it has, I mean, we, I, I text with him two, three times a week and talk to him on the phone twice a week, just about what he's doing. And it's not, it's not always about what he's picking or what's out. Sometimes it's about his kids. Sometimes it's about where he's traveling to or, or where I'm traveling to, or, I mean, oh, we're so these, these relationships that we need to build between us as chefs and the people around us. Um, that help us do our jobs are so important. And, you know, I've had in the past conversations with different, uh, first of all, and foremost with, with one of my guys that is in charge of all the products about, about relationships and the importance of actually having human to human conversations as opposed to text messages or emails or going on websites and web shops and stuff like that. Um, because they are they're they're that important and relationships open doors to not only ingredients but other conversations about other things that allow us more knowledge to do our jobs and i think 
that you know we we talked about in the kitchen and having minimal technological <laughs> intervention in kind of the processes that we're doing but you can see in these relationships that we are you know you talk about a chef kind of being the the in between between the person eating the food and nature well we have we're having technology becoming that in between um between the the farmer and the forager and the chef and i think in this in this aspect it's we're regressing um not only in how we our attachment to the products but just our attachment as human beings and how we interact with each other yeah i i think that's right i mean yeah we we're coming up against this a lot and i i think to me it's like there's there's actually two different kinds of knowledge there's there's a kind of knowledge where you like um separated from something and, and, and able to interact with it mechanically. And then there's a kind of knowledge where you have a sort of blood and guts relationship. It's face to face, you know, you're shaped by that person or that plant or that landscape and it shapes you. Um, it's weird because we've had this whole movement around, um, it's all about the ingredients, you know, like it was, first of all, it's all about the technique with the molecular gastronomy thing. And then it's swung right over to no, it's about the, it's about the ingredient. Um, and yet now there's chefs accessing wild ingredients in, in the UK. Like chefs, um, they want to use uh, WhatsApp. They want to order from an app. They want to place their order by email. And I totally get what's going on. These guys are being screwed right down in terms of their, the time that they have available and so on. So they're just trying to get everything done. But, but I'm, you know, I'm told this is what people do now. They'll just place the order on WhatsApp at 2 o'clock in the morning. Whereas when we first started out, our whole thing was based on the fact that we'd phone the chefs and, and, and they were our mates. You know, we'd be, we'd be engaging and, like you say, telling stories and, and finding out what they've been up to, what's happening there. Um, it, it's, it's taken us a while to realize we've, we've given up phoning chefs now because we found we were just spending hours to be told chef's busy or can't get through and things like that. Um, um, so we've tried to respond and say, okay, if this is the way you want to interact, We'll, we'll take an order, but to be honest, it, it leaves me wanting to um, shut the business down and go and do something else because yeah. Yeah. You know, what we want to do is is engage and have this, this um, like we're learning about the ingredients from what the chefs are able to feed back to us. We're feeding in what we've managed to research or what's happening out in the field. Um, and I think, it, as you say, it's, it's the fact that this technological uh, interface is now the the way that people contact things. Um, and that's not what this movement towards ingredients ought to have been all about. It's like that, that we get right back into almost contact with the soil. And as you say, the, the supplier is the thing that, that, um, that facilitates that contact for the chef. If it's, if it's just back to a machine, then um, basically we've, we've kind of taken one step away from an industrial food paradigm. Okay by saying let's get back to the ingredients from our landscape and then two steps back into an industrial paradigm because the way that we're going to connect around that is through um is through these technological things yeah so yeah we have uh, we have industrialized the um the human relationship between the chef and and the producer yeah 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 i mean in that and it's sad because when you think about what a restaurant is it's about that human to human interaction and yeah, you'd think that everything 
around that should be about that as well. Mm-hmm. But it's just moving further and further. I, I have to remind, I have to remind uh, my product manager that hey, call the farm because I know for a fact that they have a fig tree, so they have fig leaves, but it's not on their, it's not on the website or for the wet shop. Yeah, I know for a fact that they have a whole experimental field that maybe they have ten kilos of one product that we would love to use, put it on the menu for one or two days and take it off. But I, but you never, you would never. A web shop doesn't show you that stuff. Yeah. You can't have a conversation. But it is a two-way street, though, because a lot of the farmers put up web shops to also yeah. minimize this no, it's true. to make yeah. their lives easier. So I, it's going to take it's going to take both sides of the picture to kind of reconnect and and I I understand the convenience of it all, but convenience isn't I think convenience I mean I don't work in the restaurant industry because convenience is something that I uh I strive for in life <laughs> I work in the restaurant industry um mostly because in, the the result of inconveniences is actually something quite special yeah yeah you and and as you said earlier you know you're working you're working for for to create meaning and an impact with what you do and yeah I'm increasingly realizing that the, the more complex something is, the, the more different threads of, of interaction and, and engagement there are, the richer the thing becomes and the, the, the end product is, is just much better. Oh, yeah. If you try and simplify everything, then again, that's, that's the industrial model. You know, let's make it simpler, more efficient, et cetera, et cetera. Well, your end product will maybe make more money per plate, it might make you fit in with the, the lowest common denominator of what's going to be fashionable just now in, in, a, in a quick and easy way, but it won't give you that richness and that depth and, and that impact. And, 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 and just going back to what we were saying earlier about your guests, you know, I, think, I just think that perfect recipe that the guest gets is that they're able to eat something and have something that is very satisfying in a, in a sort of sensual way, in a, in a physical way. They can feel nourished and so on. But all the threads that go out, they know that everything about that meal is part of this delicious recipe of of people relating better to each other and relating better to their surroundings. I mean, the the point is that it's it's really deeply satisfying, and and it means that that your restaurant ends up being something with real deep roots in the ground. It ends up being something that's a tall, tall tree with wide spreading branches. That you know, it's 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 got a presence. In the landscape that goes way beyond just the, uh, the the closed unit of that individual dining experience, and this is this is what I feel with the ingredients that we are um, presenting and, and getting out there to chefs. Like when when it's all just down to uh, a simple transaction of 500 grams of ramsons, 150 grams of black mustard flowers, or whatever that what you're looking at is some little um, part of a plate that goes out and that get, gets consumed. I think, wow, actually, you've just had one, maybe 5% of the product that we actually have because the other 95% of that product is the stories and the relationships that lie behind that green leaf and that little flower and so on. Yeah, and- I mean... And that the other ninety five percent 
is still in the soil from where it came from. Yeah. You're 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 taking a small piece of that. So I think like you said, it's important to tell that okay, this one flower is a very small part of a much bigger ecosystem. And I mean you mentioned earlier about how you are you're the basis of forger is not really to I mean it is to deliver a certain product, but the the meaning of it is to actually tell a story about where that product came from and to create a connection between yeah. not only the chef but potentially the diner yeah. about where it came from yeah. and the importance of where it came from and how we affect where it's come from. So that that's a really when you said that to me earlier that that really that really resonated in me because it it, it is so important to to connect people with where things come from. We are very fortunate out of Mass that we have a we have a massive garden out in front of the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And we are able to take products from that garden where people can see them and put them on a plate and be able to immediately reference where they came from outside and and educate them about what's edible and what's not edible. And it's really interesting. There's a lot of I mean, we use we use quite a bit of Orpin right now. Uh-huh. And you know, Orpin in Denmark is a is a is like a garden ornamental plant. Hmm. I remember the first time I found it, walked into my wife's uh, parents' garden out back, and there's this massive Orpin bush, which I definitely have picked for the restaurant from. <laughs> um, but I said, "Oh, this is this is Orpin," and I took a piece of a leaf off and I ate it and I gave it to eat it. They're like, this has been growing in, this is a perennial that comes back for the last 10 years here. So this is edible. This is completely edible and it's delicious. And so to show them that and also talk to people at the restaurant about this plant that everyone has in their gardens as an ornamental plant is that I think really resonates with the guests um, about what is edible and what's not edible and, and that there is food all around us all the time. We just, we just don't have the right lenses to to see what it is. Well, and it's what that's what the industrial well, first of all, the agricultural and then the industrial paradigm has done to us is we've we've ended up seeing food as something that always comes from somewhere else. Yeah. And, and the potential with this the whole thing around the, the wild food with restaurants um, serving it up, if the backstory was part of that dining experience you have an amazing thing that people can can go away just recognizing that hey you know life actually carries on as it as it always was that food comes forth from the land all around us and um it doesn't have to be something that that is like 10 steps removed through an industrial process of first industrial farming and then packaging and manufacturing and, and and being moved around and like the the story really is the story of not just our ancestors in terms of hunter-gatherers, but like every other organism. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow is just out there eating food from here. <laughs> food yeah. doesn't come from somewhere else; it comes from here. Yeah, um, it's like there is a there is a potential for the wild food thing to to create a massive shift in people's basic relationship to the landscape. And when we when we consider that. Um, I mean, for me, I'm really clear that like the dislocation of people from land is the problem that we face in the 21st century. Whether it's climate change, 
change, the refugee crisis, you know, the gap between rich and poor, the, the diseases of modern life, they're, they're all reducible. A community breakdown, they're all reducible to the fact that people got dislocated from land. And that, that, is, that is ongoing. You know, smartphones are making people more dislocated from land than ever. Yeah. Because you're so busy in your phone, you don't even hear the wind blowing or notice the rustling in the trees or, or smell that rose aroma that surrounds you. You're just lost in it. And, and, and so, but the potential for restaurants to become something that actually makes people organic again, you know, that, yeah. that makes people connected to the systems of life through that experience of eating. And I just think, you know, a restaurant has the potential to, 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 to be absolutely life-changing. And, yeah, it's through the medium of, of a delicious meal. I mean, you know, and, and I appreciate you arguing that, that case so strongly because you know, I think it is right. But, like, having had that delicious meal, people could be being, um, you know, basically re-inducted into what it means to be an organism instead of like basically a flipping cyborg a virus <laughs> about humans are humans were once organisms but now they're viruses yeah 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 because we're contrary to the beneficial functioning of this uh, ecosystem yeah we're well, the only we're the only beings on the planet that could cease to exist then nothing would really happen to the ecosystem if we just cease to exist yeah, I mean that's true. Well, it would get better without us. That's that, that's the terrible truth of it. Exactly. It actually, get better, but it's not always been the case. I mean, you still see that all around the planet there are these biodiversity hotspots, and they're the bits of the planet that are still under indigenous land management. Yeah. So we 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 can be a factor that makes the thing thrive. You know, if you look at Australian uh, indigenous culture, they made that landscape thrive, having been there for fifty thousand years. There was there was. Uh, a richer biodiversity and, and, and the greater biomass on that landscape, that's, that's uh, something that um, you know, the indigenous people um, very proudly say, you know, but, but since white civilization has been there, it's all, it's all gone downhill. Yeah. Anyway, I just, I'm aware we've, um, we've um, been talking for a while and I just wanted to make sure there was time for you to um, talk about your new project. Um, yeah. I asked you earlier, what's the thing you're most excited about? And, um, and you, you were saying that you've, you've launched a brewery, which uh, yeah. sounds, that sounds really interesting. Do you, do you want to? We, yeah. uh, we, op we opened a brewery called Broaden and Build uh, about almost five months ago now. And this was, this was a project that's been in the works for like four years. And for me, it's really close to my heart. I'm from San Diego, so I grew up in the craft brewing kind of boom uh, that happened 10, 15 years ago back there. Yeah. And this, this was a way, you know, I, I followed the brewing world quite closely for the for, for many years. And I saw this really, I've had numerous conversations with brewer friends back, back home and in, in Denmark. And I just saw a real disc, you know, we're talking, this is a perfect conversation to have right now. This, we talk, we're talking about ingredients and connection to ingredients. And I saw just a, a real, lack of I saw a real lack of just desire to be connected to the ingredients in the brewing world and you know people weren't really making an effort to find out where their malts were coming from where their hops were coming from how these things were grown and I just I just almost I mean it almost became out of frustration you know you know, McKellar, uh, Mikkel, the owner of McKellar, he and I are good friends. And, 
he, we were talking about this and and at one point four years ago he says to me man you you're this is a this is something that is going to be really challenging for you um to find a brewery that wants to work how you work at the restaurant he goes you should just open your own brewery and i was like yeah right i'm not going to open my own brewery mm. but here we are four years later and we're brewing beer so and in the last four years i've you, I've been lucky enough to be connected with some of the breweries out there that are really, really looking at ingredients as a, as something that's really important. Like where are your malts coming from and your hops and the ingredients you're using within the, not just buying like mass produced uh, peach puree to put in your beer, but actually buying peaches from the farmer and processing these peaches yourselves. Yes, it costs more money, but it's that important that that's what you should do. So we are, we are, definitely applying the same mindsets that we are applying at a mass to the brewery all the way down to the point where we are we work with a company that is taking our spent beer mash after we brew the beer they put it through a fermentation process they trap the methane turn it to biofuel and then we buy the biofuel back from them and we run the brewery on biofuel so we are we're really approaching this in, like I said, the same mindset as a mass. But I tell you, the biggest frustration in this whole process has been the ingredients. Because when you reach out to someone about malts and you tell them that I want to know exactly what farm these malts came from, everyone just like sh shakes and laughs at you like, yeah, you're crazy. Like, why do you want to know this? Because they've never been asked that question. So again, this brewery hopefully will have an impact and will hopefully we can have some kind of impact on the industry showing people the importance that, okay, yes, you, you, why doesn't the consumer ever ask where do these malts come from or where do these hops come from? And that's one thing that I've really learned as well is that the same people that are drinking all this craft beer are the same people that only eat organic food, but no one is asking this question. Like, are these malts organic? Are these hops organic? Are these hops grown right? Are these, they don't even have to be organic as long as they're farmed correctly without pesticides and in a kind of sustainable way. And so it's funny to talk to people that are so militant about organic, but then they drink beer and they don't even ask the question about the ingredients of the beer. So that, that whole paradigm is, has been really interesting um, from, from, approaching brewing and running a brewery from the mindset that we operate in an everyday basis. But one thing that's, you know, and I'll go back to deliciousness and, and flavor, you know, from a chef's standpoint, brewing beer and delivering flavor in a liquid form is something that's quite different. There's all these flavors and that we are used to uh, using, but we're used to tasting and, and using them in solid form or, or form with texture. And as soon as you put a lot of those flavors into liquid form, they change completely. So understanding that and how flavor transfers, um, how the fermentation of the beer affects the flavor and affects, affects sugar content. And, you know, because we're, because we're on your show, Miles, and talking about uh, wild things, and uh, we, we are definitely exploring this using wild herbs in the brewing process and that has been really interesting because you know i've used black currant leaves a thousand times but when you use black currant leaves in a beer 
that also contains hops, that changes things completely. And so understanding how these ingredients work uh, with other ingredients as well, not just making a broth of blackcurrant leaves or making an, an oil of blackcurrant leaves, but making a beer with blackcurrant leaves. And our brewer, Tiago, is I'm so thankful for him because he's so open-minded and he's, I think, a big reason why he chose to come onto this project is because we are using these very unconventional things to brew beer. I mean, we've, we've brewed what you call a grit, which is basically a beer that doesn't use hops. And we've yeah. explored using mugwort, which yeah. if you go way back in history to medieval times, mugwort was used to brew beer before hops was used to brew beer. Yeah. And so again, going back in history and, and kind of, and, and people think it's so new and you're like, we have the saying at a mass of the brewery is that things are so old that they become new again because they're kind of lost in history. Yeah. And the, and the brewing of beer is so old. That process is so old that through research and you can really find some really interesting things that as soon as you like you, you post something on social media and people are like, Whoa, that's so cool. I've never heard of that. And you're like, Actually, that was done like a thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, um, I, I have looked into this a bit. I've been involved um, in, in um, a brewing project in Scotland, just in terms of advising ingredients and tasting some of the beer and things like that. Didn't actually get involved in, in practically beyond that. But um, it was interesting to learn, um, you know, with, with the, with the, the, the use of hops having the three different well that I know of anyway but, but, but there's possibly more but you know the, the antimicrobial function the the bitterness function and, and the aromatic function yep. the, all of the old brewing plants basically fulfilled all of those so you have things like ground ivy which um, is actually quite hoppy yeah. you've used that one yet yeah, yeah, yeah. The ground ivy is a—it's an awesome flavor. It's yeah. it's a bittering, it's a bittering plant, but it also that those antimicrobial—you can you can stop fermentation with hops. Yeah, and in in those kind of more bittering plants. Mm. And that's that's one of the things I've been looking into a lot with you know with some of the lacto fermentation is that there are plants which which will um, that are so strong that you won't get a lacto fermentation going. Um, so you have to you have to put them in in moderation. But at the same time, if you've got something that's a bit too, um, like nettles are, um, they 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 go terrible if you leave them for too long. I've found. Yeah. But if you put some of these um, other plants which have the antimicrobial things, now I've never tried ground ivy and nettles actually, but it's it's fascinating what you're doing. There's there's um there's a whole world of beer out there from from the white plants, just as you say, like from the from the from the traditional ones. I'd yeah. love to taste some of this. Which which uh, which which other wild plants have you have you been tinkering with there? So black currant leaves, mugwort. Um, we we've used a lot of uh, strawberry leaf. Yeah. Um, blackberry leaf. All these leaves they create this like almost tea, almost black tea like flavor. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you extract them at certain temperatures. Um, what else? A lot. Uh, Woodruff. Woodruff is an amazing is amazing in a beer, like a low hoppy beer. Yeah. Ground elder gives this beautiful kind of grassy flavor, and then Angelica is is gives this like almost tonka bean flavor when you heat it. 
a little bit. So yeah, we we've really the the. <laughs> I mean, Th- Thomas, our forager, loves it because when you brew a thousand liters of beer and you want to get this these botanicals into it, you need to use a lot of it. Like, so he's getting some nice orders then for this. Oh yeah, yeah. He's like, Thomas, can we get about thirty-five to fifty kilos of black currant leaves? And he's like, okay. Then I'm gonna have to pick on a day where I'm not picking anything else, just black currant leaves. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he, he gets some good orders, definitely for the brewery. Do you, uh, do, do you know um, do you know Per Kerstler, um, Matt? No, I don't. He's he's a guy. Um, he works for um, or he did work for the big Aston Tide, the, uh, the boxer. Anyway, he's a he's a brewer. You might want to talk to him because he's he's got um, a lot of stuff around the um, the traditional brewing plants that he's done. Okay. Yeah, you might find him really interesting to talk to. Um, I tasted some of the beers years ago when I when I came over to visit. Um, but the one I really wanted to taste was the Ground Ivy one. Yeah, and he didn't have any, which was which is a shame because he claims that uh, Ground Ivy beer is is just the best of all beers. Ooh. But but um, he said he never could because he's I guess it's because he's not a forager. He'd just send little bits of Ground Ivy around the farm and so on. Yeah. Possibly, but, but but we know ground ivy to be a super abundant wild plant. So, yeah, um, for, find the right spots. It's it's another one that you could uh, you could get a nice thirty kilo ordered into uh, Thomas. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got a slightly vested interest. I've, I've said this so many times now, like telling people uh, the good news about ground ivy as as a as a beer ingredient. Uh-huh. I would really expect after all these years to to, to have regularly people turning up at my door with Grand Ivy beer because um, so I've told so many people and, and expected that they'd go and try it but um, I've yet to actually taste it because I'm not I'm, I'm not really at, at that uh, I haven't got into it myself the, the beer brewing thing yeah I mean the the beer world is a it's a crazy place I mean you a lot we talk about the brewery a lot I mean there's of course we brew a lot of IPAs and a lot of flavored IPAs and stuff like that and, and you we always have this say you, you have to brew the beers that you're you're not super excited about brewing in order to brew the beers that you're super excited about brewing. I guess it's like anything in life. A lot of times you have to do things you don't want to do in order to do things you do want to do. Mm. So that I mean it's probably it takes and it's also like if you're doing a like a thousand liters of beer yeah. and you're taking a chance and we've done this numerous times. I see. And Definitely, some of the batches haven't turned out great. Where you brew a thousand liters of beer, and then you're just kind of like, okay, that beer doesn't taste amazing. What do we do with it? <laughs> so, so that's the explanation. That's why nobody's kind of gone crazy on the Grand Ivy beer yet. I think I don't. I I would I would assume that's the because even myself, who I love taking chances and, and doing things just to do them to see if they work out. Yeah, yeah. I also like, I would, I would probably, when we brewed a, a, a ground Ivy beer, we would probably brew a thousand liters of like a base Saison and then add ground Ivy to half of it. And then the other half do something else with yeah. just well, to see what. I'll tell you why I'm getting at this conversation. I think I am just going to have to figure out brewing and make some myself. Exactly. There you go. Instead of the, telling people about it, I'll say, taste this ground Ivy beer. <laughs> Be, be careful what you say because that's what I said four years ago about opening a brewery. 
<laughs> as a as kind of like, oh yeah, sure, I'll do that. And then here we are, four four years later. So I'll be expecting you to be opening your own brewery in about five years, Miles. Yeah, it's probably gonna happen. Yeah. Okay. There's some. You should check out this brewery in the states. They're called Forger. Oh yeah. And uh, they are aggressively going at this. So mm-hmm. I, I'd have to. I I haven't checked. I wonder if they have a, a ground ivy beer. I'd be I'd be curious. Yeah, I should check it out. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, what do you what do you think about um, where the restaurant industry is at these days? I mean, you know, I've. I definitely think of you guys as being a bit of a beacon out there in terms of you're talking about sustainability and and things like that, but you're actually doing it. I mean, yeah, I just think there is such there is such huge potential for food to become something that that shifts people's attitudes and and um, and just makes things better. You know? Yeah, it's, it's it's like. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I always feel a bit nervous with this, like we've been a bit too preachy. But I mean, the, the, the point for me is that when you know where stuff is coming from and you know that it's, it's not only is it not doing any harm, but like the fact that you're using this kind of stuff in this kind of way is actually making things better. Yeah. I think that actually feels good. This isn't, this isn't about some kind of, again, like hair shirt, self-denial, let's all be miserable, but we know that we're doing the right thing. It's like, let's do the right thing and just feel good. Let's feel like this is really, it's really satisfying. It's very pleasurable to know that we're making something wonderful happen. And- I mean, you just said it right there. It feels good. I mean, I, I had, I had not long ago, a, a journalist asked me, they're like, so, you know, this whole sustainability thing, like, why do you, why do you do it? Why? I mean, why do you do it? And I said, I, I mean, I thought in, I don't know if they were looking for some like really cosmic moon in the stars type answer. Yeah. And I said, I said to him, I said, because it's no other reason that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And it feels good to do it. I can go home and feel good about what happened at work that day and what's going to happen the next day and what happened last week. Because I know that we're making an effort to do it. And you know what's, you know, you asked me about the state of the restaurant world um, right now. And I think we're at a very, you know, we're at a very weird time right now. And I mean, there's so many positive things about it. Like I said before, you know, we as chefs have a voice to really tell people how we feel and potentially have a massive impact on not only the industry, but the world. But at the same time, this kind of fame and these, this, this is, I mean, nothing boils my blood more than going on these other chefs' Instagrams and seeing them drive around in like Mercedes bins that's been sponsored and pictures of how fast they're going on the freeway or, or pictures of expensive watches. And it's like, just like, you guys are idiots, man. Like, you guys are making us all look bad. You guys are making us all look like egotistical assholes that don't care about anything. Mm. I mean, it, and it just devalues the work that so many people are that are that are doing the right thing or trying to do out there. Yeah. And people are constant. And then, and then you have this whole kind of sustainability movement, which is great. Don't get me wrong. But 
the word sustainable is becoming like the new organic. Like it's becoming a marketing tool and restaurants are greenwashing themselves and people are talking about, oh, we're sustainable and we're this and we're that. And then, and, you know, and you look, and you're like, you are not, you're like, really, I just, I just gave a talk at a, uh, at a food festival in Denmark and down South uh, a few weeks ago about this exact thing that, you know, if you're a restaurant and you're going to talk about being sustainable, you need to know what that means before you start talking about it. Mm. You need to know, first of all, you need to know how you, you need to know before you can do anything, you need information and data on what you are actually doing. Cause I remember every year, at a mass, we get our carbon footprint read so we can understand how much CO2 we are creating per guest and where it's coming from. And because once we have that information, then we can make responsible decisions on how to reduce it. And the restaurants are just, they'll chop some parsley stems and put them in a sauce and hashtag it sustainable and, and completely greenwash what they're doing. Whereas, you know, they really have no idea what sustainable means. You know, we, we have the average, we got our sustainable or our CO2 report back this year. And the average restaurant at, at, at a high end level produces between 19 and 21 kilos of CO2 per guest. We got our report back this year and a mass produces between 11 and 12 kilos per guest. And so, and, but it's been, a, it's taken us five years to get there. Yeah. And it's only because we have this knowledge and we put the effort forth to understand what we're doing. Because yeah. the first time we had our CO2 footprint read, I was like, I was convinced, like, we are doing all these things and we're going to have such a good reading. Man, when we got the first one back, I was like, holy shit. We're like, not even barely, but like, moving our CO2 footprint, even though we're doing all these different things. And so, but over the years, after understanding where that where that CO two comes from and and how we can reduce it, that that's that's where we are now. So, I just challenge all those chefs out there that who say they're working sustainably to to get you need information to understand what you're actually doing. And well, until you have that information, you can't really say you're working sustainably. I I tell you what, I I think that's absolutely right. But there's there's another Asian that people also need and that's motivation and i, I think yep. that the problem is that you know the whole the whole greenwash thing is part of the sort of pr disease that has infected modern life which is absolutely you know, it's, all, it's all image over substance like yep. we, we don't actually care what we are we we care about what we seem to be yeah what we seem to be will create a reputation that ensures we become famous and and, and make money yeah never mind what we are yeah, because we all know the whole thing is is just a heap of maggots, and and I think unfortunately, that's what it boils down to. For me, is that yeah. people don't actually have the faith that you know, or, you know, the whole organism of of life on Earth, the whole organism of communities, is actually something that that is self sustaining and 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 holds us and carries us. You know, I mean, you just you know, people talk about the the planet supporting life. That's a, a phrase that trips off the tongue. But we know that out of the 
billions of miles of space, you know, that apparently there is only this one planet, as far as we know, that supports life. The idea that this planet supports life, it means if, if something supports you, it, it holds you up, you know, it carries you, it, it, it holds you. And I just think the problem is, the reason people treat life like it is just a, a pile of maggots and a rat race is that at the most bottom level, they don't believe that. But don't believe that that life sustains you. That other people will look after you if you if you don't, um, you know, look after number one. And I think that's the key issue. It's just that the, the the bad motivation that, that we see driving all of this PR nonsense, and which is actually just causing us to effectively be in a a bus driving at ninety miles an hour off the edge of a cliff. You know, as a species. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the key problem there is that. Is that people don't have that basic faith in the in the in the in the sustaining power of life, and and extending that through to the sustaining power of other people, and that that like if we just concentrated on the substance, you know the image would take care of itself. If you if you just do things because you mean it, if you did things because you care, yeah, that that you will start connecting with so many different things, with different people, with with the with the you know, the robustness and power of those ingredients that you're working with, if you stop just using it as a token gesture that looks good on the menu that says wild or whatever, but you, you actually engage with the fact that this is back to the land and it's, it's, it's the product of a, a wild ecosystem and all of these different things. That the, the image that comes at the end of that is that people know that you're the real deal. You can't pretend to be the real deal and have people think that you're the real deal. That's, that's <laughs> I tell you, unfortunately, you can. <laughs> and, and the restaurant industry is a perfect example of that. You can you can pretend to be something in the restaurant industry, and people believe it. I mean, and that's and maybe that's one of the downfalls of social media, is that you can, and that's it makes me sick to say that. I hate saying that, but that's like, so many people out there just pretend to be something, and then, but they're not. And yeah. it's, it's, I hate it's, and that's, I think, I mean, that, that statement right there sums up, I think the majority of the restaurant industry out there. And I don't want, it's not all because there are people out there, small majority of people doing the right thing. Yeah. But I think ultimately though, Matt, I mean, it is depressing that you say that, that you can, I'm sorry to say. but, 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 but I think ultimately what we, what we see is, is a movement towards um, authenticity and, and genuineness where, you know the the lid is being ripped off all sorts of things, and you've you've given an amazing example there of, of you know you're ex, you're wanting to extend the sphere of consciousness from organic food into beer for yeah. those of us who are trying to be conscious about what we consume. And I think that's fantastic. There's there's lights going on everywhere, and and that that's the upside of all this social media and internet stuff. Yeah, is that you know once people start asking the right questions. Then you're not going to get away with it, and 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 I mean that's just true now. And 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 because because um, you know people are just taking things at face value for now. They're not asking the right questions. But the long term future, consumers are wanting to buy in with their with their money. They're wanting to buy into the thing that's for real because they, honest to goodness, they're not wanting to spend that money on a greenwash. It's just that they're not asking the right questions. So. Yeah. In a little while, we're going to get to the point where the only things still standing are going to be the ones that actually mean it and yep. actually care, not the ones that have learned how to pretend to care 
for an Instagram post or or whatever there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess. Uh, but I, I think that point you just made is a great. It's a great point about how people they want to do the right thing, but they they just don't know the right questions to ask. I saw a perfect example of that I I gave a talk at a friend has a small bookstore in North Copenhagen, and I went up there gave a talk to like thirty housewives about shopping responsibly and knowing what to look for when you go out and shop because all these all these people they wanted to do the right thing and a per we went we were talking about fish and I was like when you go to your your fish your fish guy or or girl ask him is this line caught is it caught with gill nets cena nets I don't want anything trawled and they were all looking at me like, we don't know what any of that means. Wow. <laughs> and like, what is it? What is what is the difference between trawled and line caught? Like, they didn't know. But just that little, that one little piece of information, they were just like, this is amazing. Now I now I can go and I can challenge him on on what it what he has and why do you why do you have trawled fish? That's terrible for the environment. And that so that it's a great it's a great point you just made. It's like how, but how do we get this information out to, so people can ask the right questions? I think that's our biggest challenge right now. I think, I think that's what we're trying to do. I don't know that we figured out exactly how to do it, but it's, I think it's like bringing, just opening up people's consciousness about what, what they really, people know what they want. They just don't know, how to get it. things that point out the stuff that is wrong and has got to stop and we need things that point out that that point to the genuine so that people can say okay that's that's the real deal we'll go for it and and, and like you say how to ask the right questions to determine which is which yeah but i think we've i think we've um i, I feel like we've started moving into a, a new space because a, a while back i think there was this thing about um it's just it's just emotionally exhausting to even touch on this because you end up realizing that every single thing you spend your wages on is causing some kind of devastation or injustice so it's almost better to shut your eyes and, and not think about it because you know there's nothing you can do about it well that's human nature <laughs> but but we are beginning to be at a point where we where, there, where we're thinking actually there is something we can do about it because th there are people out there that are selling me a product that that is honestly trying to uh to to uh have a positive impact and not a negative one if, if you see what i mean like 20 years ago you'd have been stuffed really if you wanted to spend your money ethically whereas oh, yeah. i mean people um i'd go as far to say less than 10 years ago yeah sure yeah, yeah. i mean it's i that movement you're talking about that is i i definitely in the last five years especially you can see that switch 
that uh, that desire um, for a certain amount of people to actually, okay, if I'm buying food, I want to buy the right food. And I don't care if it costs me a little bit more money. Or I'm going to make a conscious effort to try to go to the farmer's market instead of going to the grocery store. So that means I only can go shopping twice a week instead of every every other day. Yeah. So I think I think you're definitely right, and and it's ironic because you know where that movements most of those movements are happening in the more metropolitan areas. Mm. Like you can see it, like you go to a place like Los Angeles, or I was just in Los Angeles last week. Yeah, I mean the farmers markets are packed with people, everyday people. Or you go to a place like Copenhagen, where this way of thinking is is very present, or I mean, it's the it's the more it's ironically it's the places that are more removed from nature that have the more progressive thinkers in it. Well, I I think I think though there's there's an interesting point there because you have you have this um, potentially incredibly wise species that lives in those metropolitan areas called Homo sapiens, right? Yeah. We have this well developed brain and this such incredibly well developed social capacity. You know, when we are choosing to, to go organic, I mean really organic, as in connected with the systems of life instead of plugged into a machine, yeah. we are amazing. Yeah. So lots of those kind of organic mindset humans who are committed to becoming more organically mindsetted all together in one space and get them exchanging information and, and, and they're really up for it and they're not stuck in some um, traditional mold because, I mean, Going back to what I mentioned earlier about tradition, I, I didn't mention the, the kind of train of thought that, that looks at the downside of tradition, and that is that it sort of locks things into a particular form, uh, so it becomes taboo to step outside. And the beauty of where we are now, Matt, in my opinion, is that we're in this state of flux, like the, the lockdown, you've got to do it like this stuff, it's been dissolved. Yeah. And we, can, we can actually metamorphosize into any form of life that, that we choose. And if, we, if we're going for, okay, we want an ethical one, we want a more beneficial one, we want a more social one, we want a more ecological one, and then we're all working together with that, with all these information fallback loops, I think that's your explanation for why the metropolis is the place where it's happening. Yeah. Cities are becoming forests in that sense. You know, I, I, I have this kind of view of the, the countryside, because I, li I live in the countryside, I live in a very rural area, I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by organic farms. But most parts of the countryside, you're in the midst of a zone of death because it's industrial agriculture zone. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Whereas in the city, you've got this culture going on, which is organic. And yeah, I th it's funny, though. It is paradoxical. Completely. Yeah. But it is. I mean, you you just venture 20 minutes outside of the city of Copenhagen and you are in just like hyper conservative mode out here. And people are. I mean, you. We live in in, in Copenhagen. Everyone is like anti-industrialized milk and anti-industrialized meat, and there's all these small farm shops, and you. Everyone has access, but then you go right outside of the city, where a lot of this stuff is being produced, and you have no access to that stuff. Hmm. And it's really, it's it's such it's such it's so ironic, and you you know, you. We're lucky enough to work with the, some biodynamic farms and organic farms outside of the city, and you go out there, and then 
you go to the very edge of their property when you're walking around with them and they're like, yeah, and you see right here, three meters away, there's like this, there's grass that's blue. And you're like, oh my God. You're like, you you also are surrounded out here. And they they get death threats from their neighbors. And it's just, it's, and they're the minority out there. Where did you come into the city? And these people are the majority. So yeah, it is, it is a weird, a weird paradigm there. Yeah. But just the fact that it's, exists whether it's in the city or in the countryside is is good enough for me yeah i mean i feel like things are turning and it's um yeah a lot of cause for hope and yeah uh, there's only cause for hope. I, I was just having a conversation uh with my cousin outside um before we got on this call about about how we we're talking about green energy and renewable energy sources about how you know it is there's a massive, a massive switch, and I was talking about China, and you know, China is like, China has passed up the U.S. and the majority of the world in, in its commitment to kind of renewable energies and turning that into a, a just a norm over there. And we were talking about how just you know, back in the states, it's the opposite, and in this and that. But you see, but even though, if you look at the states right now, even even though it's this whole all this Trump shit and coal and oil more coal plants and oil fields and oil refineries have closed down during this the last three years than in the than in the history um than in the past recent years despite the fact that trump is trying to shore all that stuff up and exactly they're still closing down because there's already so in in there i read an interview recently from a a gentleman that was a i mean he ran oil refineries and he said, you know, it's too late. It doesn't matter what you do. There's so much momentum for renewable energy now that it's only a matter of time until coal and oil is obsolete. And it doesn't matter how much effort you put into trying to revive coal and oil. It's not going to happen. There's too exactly. much. So that's and that's an amazing thing to hear. I love to hear that. So you're right. There's there is a there is a switch um that's happening and i think we're we're in a very exciting time because it's happening during our generations well that that's very encouraging to hear that it just makes me think like the, the axe being laid to the root of the tree you know like there's this death death blow been dealt to to yeah. all that and and it takes a while to see um the whole thing die but exactly time well, yeah it's not going to be instant it's going to take time but it's definitely we are going in the right direction, 100%. And at the same time, we have these these tender shoots of of, um, of these social movements and cultural movements, um, which are springing up. But I mean, they've got deep roots. That's the thing that I keep coming back to. That that when we start trying to work in a way that's more organic and and more culturally. Um, substantial and so on. It's the way life has always been. You know, we yeah. we we orient to that. We 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 don't orient to staring at a smartphone. We don't orient to taking food out of a packet. We don't orient to, you know, commuting for three hours every day. And you know, we're we're just getting back to normal. That's what I feel. When we when we do all of these things, it might be a lot of effort to sort of shift things around. But it, I mean, it's all just it's all just getting back to normal. We're just getting back to how to be 
a species like any other species that works with the surroundings and works with each other rather than setting up these massive gaps between us and other living things, between us and other people, um, which characterizes modern life. Um, exactly. I guess, I guess you could look at it just like cooking. I mean, as we were talking about earlier, you know, you have every, everyone is using these fermentation, which is centuries old, but applying new technology to it and new knowledge to it to really understand it um, for all of our benefit. I guess you could look at the, hopefully the human race is going in that direction where we are going to go back to something or a, or a mindset in which we lived in a thousand years ago or even 300 years ago. And, but we'll be able to apply modern technology to that to really understand it and hopefully be able to improve on it. Matt, this is what I think is the, is the crucial point that we've used technology unthinkingly in ways that have really undermined the fabric of life and undermined social fabric. Oh, yeah. So the problem is that we've gone in unthinkingly. If we'd have, if we'd have thought about what some of these technologies would do in terms of undermining existing connectivity between people and land or between just, just connectivity, to just live yeah. it, you know, if we think, okay, what we need to do is, is actually – do like almost like a risk assessment here. Yeah. How is using this technology going to make people less connected to each other, less connected to landscapes, isolate us from the systems of life? And how could we just pause for thought here and think, okay, well, we could introduce it in this way instead, in a way that enhances. So, I mean, the, the example of, um, you, you know, what the internet does in terms of alienating people from, from each other. Uh-huh. And then a medium like the podcast, which we're doing right now, which rather than being like a short, inf- a short information span, soundbite, superficial nonsense medium, all of a sudden the internet is, is supporting um, a, a medium which enables people to really dig deep into a subject. Anyway, that's, that's what I think. We, we, need to, we, need to, we need to use technology in a way that, that, that enhances connections rather than undermines them. Yeah. But you can see that happening with... Uh like artificial intelligence right now it's i think it's one of the first times where a technology is being developed and there's being real questions and challenges asked before it's developed yeah as in like okay if we do this what is the outcome of it and how do we control that outcome in a way that is <laughs> beneficial to to us yeah and so yeah, that I, I think you're absolutely that. That's a that's a great example of how we we create a lot of technology without actually thinking about the what negatives could come out of it. Well, the phrase springs to mind is "fools fools rush in where angels fear to tread." You know, yes, <laughs> these are such powerful tools, and we're just kind of chucking them around and thinking, "Oh dear, whoops, oh dear, yeah, Run to the planet, whoops, yeah. what? What did I just do? <laughs> how do we fix this? Oh, it's too late." Yeah. The, 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 so we've got a chance now to at least pause for thought and and think: could we um, could we do this differently? Which yeah. uh, I guess is what this is all about. This Absolutely. whole conversation: how could we do things differently and do things better? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I think I think that's as you know. I I always talk to the you know, we have conversations in the kitchen just about everyday working and you know how we interact with each other and it's 
I always, you know, I always say, you know, if you work in a way where you know that every action you take or don't take affects the person that comes behind you, if you are consciously thinking that in everything you do, then you're just going to work in a much more efficient and productive way that is also respective to your colleagues yeah. and the environment around you. Yeah. And that's it. If you just think, if you don't think about your only yourself and everything you do, then things will just more or less work themselves out. It's all about that consciousness just making your... Um... Just it, when you're conscious, you just see more than what's immediately in front of you. Basically, you, yeah. you say you think about the person that came before and the one that came after. Exactly. You think about how when I touch this, what does it move further down the line? It's yeah. um, we've talked about this before. It's just like it's making the unseen seen. You know, yeah. and when when you see what's not immediately in front of your eyes, because you understand the relational character of everything, um, all of a sudden. I don't know. It's just like you have the strength of all of that other stuff supporting you. Yeah. Well, just, like you, like we keep saying, it's it just provides a deeper meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh well, it's been awesome. really fantastic to talk to you, Matt. Um, Absolutely, Miles. I'm I'm so glad we were able to make this happen. It's been so good to have you on the podcast. Um, thank you. Thank you for having me. Definitely. We'll have to do it again soon. Absolutely. Yeah. I definitely look forward to uh, listening to more of them. There's some really just a few I've listened to. It's it's important conversations. You're having really, really important conversations that need to be had. Thanks again for, for being with us. Of course, of course. Have a good day, man. Thank you for joining us for this week's Worldwide podcast. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do spread the word. Um, you can review us through whatever podcast provider you're accessing us through uh, and rate us there as well. And um, just generally tell your friends that you're enjoying what you're hearing that would that would help us to be reaching more people so yeah that's it for this week's worldwide podcast <laughs>